Coming down off that three-day weekend high. Oh my gosh, it's still my favorite time of the week. And wherever you are, whenever you are, and however you happen to be listening, we're so glad you've chosen to tune in to DLC, especially if you're getting back on that wagon, getting yourself through a a workout or a run, having us power you through, because we're going to be with you, well, it's going to be more than 90 plus minutes this week, we've got more bonus content coming at you, the DLC is your downloadable commentary for the week, delivered the way we love it to be, completely free, thanks to our sponsors this week, Mac Weldon. And Linode, they made that possible, bringing the show to you. DLC, of course, the show all about gaming in its many forms. Games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles. Also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I'm your host, Jeff Kanata, which you can spell with two N's and one T. And I'm joined, as always, by my friend slash co-host slash nemesis. The guy who joins me in offering our sincere gratitude to all the men and women, past and present, who have given so much in service to our country. Mr. Christian Spicer, happy Memorial Day, sir. Happy Memorial Day to you, too, and to all of our listeners. And thank you for everyone that checked out uh, Marriage Is over on the YouTubes. People seem to people seem to like it, Mr. Kanata. They seem to uh, enjoy it. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of really positive comments. That, of course, is the uh, web series that Christian wrote and produced and that I am in. I was so lucky to be a part of. Uh, it's funny. It's funny. I, I hope you guys check it out. Over there, uh, uh, Christian's YouTube channel. Yeah, it's YouTube. Christian Spicer 713, which is a Houston area code. Represent. Dude, I woke up this morning in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. So I'm a little slow. I might be a little slow. You could probably tell from the intro that uh, the words aren't coming as u- as easily as they usually do. <laughs> that's okay. Might have a little Southern drawl sticking around. Uh, <laughs> that's okay because we have an awesome guest that's going to help me get through this. And is going to raise the bar of the show uh, tremendously because we're excited. You know, DLC always stands for your downloadable Kanata, your downloadable Christian. But this week we have a brand new DLC. We're excited because DLC stands for Destinations with Lots of Creativity. Because we have the Associate Creative Director of Theme Parks at Pixar. She also created Costume Quest uh, at Double Fine. We are delighted to welcome Tasha Sonart here to the show. Thank you for being with us, Tasha. Hi, I'm really glad to be here. I am a big fan of DLC and also um, a longtime listener of Weekend Confirmed. So, oh, thank you. Thanks. That's that means a lot. We we appreciate it. We're excited to have you. Um, my first question is: What does an associate creative director of theme parks at Pixar do? <laughs> um, well, um, I came from an animation background. Um, I was an animator um, at Pixar. For about nine years, I started on A Bug's Life. Um, That was my first film that I animated on Mm -hmm. there, and I was there for a long time. And then I actually left and worked at Double Fine um, for about five and a half years. Um, I directed the animation on Brutal Legend there and then um, led my own project, which was Costume Quest. And um, after that, I went back to Pixar, and I've been... Um, first I was actually in marketing for a little while, marketing and now in theme parks for the last year or so. Um, so does the theme park, I mean, Pixar is owned by Disney, right? So I imagine those are Disney theme parks. Um, what our theme parks group does is any, any, um, anything at 
any of the Disney parks that involves the Pixar characters comes through us. So we have to basically sign off on anything that involves our characters. So that includes like um, the walk around characters, costumes, parades, shows, rides, um, merchandise in the parks. So yeah, it's a big variety of stuff and it's really fun. I love it. It's kind of cool, actually, that Disney doesn't say, you know, hey, we own you. We can do whatever we want. They actually go, hey, you know, we want to make Cars Land, so we should probably consult with the people who make Cars movies to know that we're doing it right. Right, yeah. Our, our theme parks group was a big part of designing Cars Land. Um, and I think a big part of it, too, is just that John Lasseter, who's um, uh, the creative head of Pixar, is really into the theme parks. So I think that, you know, because he's really into it, that really, you know, it kind of helps preserve the Pixar, um, Pixar characters. Yeah. Well, you clearly uh, have a love for video games as well and, uh, you know, play video games and have created video games. Do you, do you miss working on them and, and making them? Um, you know, sometimes, although I am, also a little bit involved with the interactive group at Pixar. So there's a very small interactive group and any, um, any video games that involve our characters go through us as well. So um, I do get to still work on games a little bit, although it's definitely a smaller part of my job now um, than it used to be. So um, yeah, I guess sometimes I do miss working on it. Like when GDC rolls around. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But I don't miss the long hours. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. I, I have to say, I think maybe one of my favorite video games in the world is the Mr. Potato Head ride at California Adventure, which is it's a ride, but it really is just a video game. You're you know you're in that crazy uh, 3D uh, environment. Oh, are you talking about um, Toy Story Mania? No, I th- Toy Story Mania is the other one. Isn't the Mr. Potato Head in California Adventure? Isn't Toy Story Mania in? uh in in the main Disneyland park but isn't the the, the I can't, it's like Mr. Potato Head's something or other crazy time jamboree but you you know you're shooting the balls at the at, at at virtual stuff on the giant screens and you're in little carts and they're twisting around no am I I think that's Toy Story Mania and the other one that's in uh Disneyland proper I think is um Buzz Lightyear You're right yes <laughs> well I that, yeah. I love that I love that, that ride is that amazing, ride is amazing. Yeah, and I mean, some theme park stuff like Toy Story Mania is um, incorporating a lot of what you might call game stuff. So, I mean, that's another aspect of it that really appeals to me is just, it's, they're both interactive art. And I think it's just really interesting, all this um, mixed media stuff. Well, we're excited to have your perspective in the show this week. We do have a lot to get to. Um, obviously, it's Overwatch week, so we're going to be talking a lot of Overwatch. Everybody's talking about Overwatch. Sounds like that game uh, yeah, sold some copies. Uh, people are playing it. Um, we got lots of other cool news. You know, we're, we're coming up on E3. I think the hype train is going to make an appearance in this episode. So let's get right to it. Let's start the show the way we always do with Story of the Week. Story of the week, it's the story of the week. Story of the week, it's the story of the week. Story of the week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happen in the world of games this week. As always, you could submit stories for our consideration using our hashtag on Twitter, which is DLC uh, uh, DLC SOTW. 
Told you guys I was slow this week. DLC SOTW is this is the hashtag. Or you can visit our subreddit, which is great. Oh my gosh, by the way, big shout out to the subreddit this week because last week I talked about uh, organizing some play for people who want a positive community. And boy, everybody came through in a big way. There's not one, but two different threads in the subreddit uh, of people getting together playing on different platforms. So check that out. You can find that at 5x5dlc.reddit.com. Uh, it's also a place you can find stories and submit stories and talk about the episode, all kinds of cool stuff. But Tasha, you are our guest, so you get first pick of stories. So what would you consider your story of the week this week? All right. So I am going to pick this um, – the development of these backpack PCs for VR gaming. I I think that's really interesting just because um, anything that makes VR – lighter and easier to walk around with, um, you know, no wires. I think anything that makes it more accessible, mm-hmm. um, I think is, is a step in the right direction for, for VR. Um, and I think it just, it opens up just more interesting applications of VR to not have to be tethered by something like you could walk through an environment with your own little VR uh, set up, which could be really cool. Yeah. You're, you're a little ghostbuster with your proton pack on your back. Um, uh, this was a story that was submitted through, uh, using the hashtag by, uh, at Carlo Barbasa. And we appreciate him sending this in. Uh, this is actually quite a few people sent this. Um, this is pretty wild. Two different companies have introduced these backpack PCs and, uh, as Tasha mentioned, the goal is to have you be untethered in VR. So these are not insignificantly powered computers. These are serious uh, i5s, i7s with uh, serious graphics cards. And they're trying to make them light. Um, the HP is doing one. MSI is doing another. Uh, the HP version is less than 10 pounds. And uh, they're made to sort of fit in these little backpack uh, form factors and you, you you throw them on your pack, and you throw the goggles on, and now you can walk around in and not worry about uh, cords anywhere, and and being yanking stuff out of the wall or or whatever. Uh, and maybe one day you want a VR in your bedroom, and the other day you want a VR in the living room, and one day you want a VR at your buddy's house. I guess you can just VR wherever you are. By the way, they should use that. Um, yeah, I was gonna say you just uh, came up with a really good uh, slogan there. Yeah. <laughs> um, Something tells me, Christian, you are not as uh, as impressed with this. I'm impressed by it. I mean, I think the sooner we get it to sunglass form factor, the better. You know, it's like this is the step in slimming. And I think this is a niche upon a niche. Like, I don't know, you know, who approved these at HP that is like, this is the thing that'll <laughs> that'll sell for us. But, you know, portable VR um, whether it's an Ikea contraption home built that keeps the cords out of your feet or, you know, a backpack that you take it with you or wherever, I think is a step in the right direction for current state VR. I think it needs to be like an NFL refs, you know, odd mic on their belt size. Like we got to get smaller, 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 smaller. And it's nice to see people working on it already because, you know, talking about theme park, right? This is just I have no inside knowledge. It's not like, oh, and before the show we talked about, but I was just at Disneyland not too long ago and Star Tours is incredible. But imagine like Star Tours, but you're sitting there with the VR helmet on 
but they're piping in live video screen. So I look to my right and I see Jeff sitting there and we wave to each other, whatever, because we're seeing real life, but projected in our VR helmet. And then we start the tar- start to a ride and it's like we're seeing the traditional ride, but then, uh-oh, the side of the hull gets ripped out and Jeff gets ripped out. Like I see that happen, you know, but- Why Jeff do all your fantasies involve me dying, Christian? I don't understand that. Well, this is only one, but they all do. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Uh, <laughs> and there are some rides. I think uh, Six Flags. There's another ride where, where Jeff gets eaten by a dinosaur. <laughs> and then there's this ride where uh, Jeff is, is, is shot by stormtroopers. And then – I mean, I don't know if you guys have played a Bugs Life ride, but in it, Jeff gets stepped on. He's an ant and he gets <laughs> – Jeff gets devoured by, by insects. It's great. <laughs> Is there? Oh yeah, I, I I get it. The Bugs Life experience thing is cool, where they're you're watching the movie and then they're like you feel bugs on your feet. It's kind of creepy. And then they eat Jeff and they consume him, kind of like a horror. What I'm saying is <laughs> portable VR. Yes, I'm all about portable VR. Jeff, don't paint me into the the cynic corner of portable VR. Paint me into the cynic corner for the any you know anyone buying these. But uh, the idea we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't even buy one of these, right? No, I wouldn't. And I I probably am going to surprise Tasha and say, uh, I don't think this is the solution. I don't think this is the solution that we're looking for. Um, What you're describing, Christian, is basically uh, HoloLens, right? You want want HoloLens to like mix – you want AR. You want a mix of reality and virtual reality and, you know, overlay things onto the the real world. I think that would be cool as well. And, you know, HoloLens is a self-contained solution supposedly that that won't need to to be tethered. Man, I want these to be cool. I just don't think they're going to be cool. <laughs> I can't – I. this is coming from the guy that, you know, went to Ikea and bought a lamp and turned it into a, uh, you know, a Vive holder so he could make the cords not wrap around his feet. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm up for some bizarre solutions to this particular problem. I just don't think strapping a computer on my back – is, is going to work, especially since they're talking about these ones having like an hour of battery life right now. Um, I don't know. It just doesn't seem, this doesn't seem like the best solution to me. It's great for an E3 demo though. You it know, is like, great for an E3 demo. To yeah. really sell the experience of the game you're making and you sit in there you're like, this is incredible. And then of course you realize there's no way I could ever do this at, <laughs> at home. <laughs> but Tasha, you, go ahead. Yeah, I guess ahead. I just think that this is a, a step in the right direction as Christian was saying is Yes, it's not, you know, the perfect solution, but I think it's, you know, it's recognizing that there's a problem with VR and then how can we solve that? Yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah, I like it. I I think, uh, I think I like the fact that people want this so bad that we're, we're, we're doing whatever we can to make it happen. And I think it's, you know, we're, we're not, we're not decades away. We're years away. So it's, it's, it's relatively close and it's going to be an amazing reality when we get there. I I'm convinced of that. Um, Christian, do you have a story of the week? What, what do I hear? What do I hear coming down the tracks? Oh, what is that? Is that, could that possibly be? Is it? It's the E3 hype train, you guys. My story of the week. I'd mentioned this before, and I feel like now I can say without fear of uh, people that chatted to me (laughs) offline getting in trouble because it's out there publicly. Um, Xbox One 
rumors for E3. I had mentioned before that I had heard that it was either going to be amazing or not amazing. And now rumors. <laughs> I love that. Christian, going out on a limb, it's going to be either amazing or not amazing. Well, I can tell you what I've heard now because what is out there is out there. And so I don't feel bad. I had to be very vague before because I didn't want to be the guy that got, the you know, three people in trouble. Um, the rumors are right now, right, that Xbox One has a slim model that they're going to show at E3 this year. And then their Neo, what are they calling it? I already forgot. Scorpio. Um, Scorpio. That's right. Their Scorpio, which is their six teraflop you know, beast of an Xbox One, the not the Xbox Two, but the next Xbox One, their incremental increase will be That's out. A lot of teraflops, 20- dude. That's double the teraflops. So many flops. So many flops. We'll be out in 2017, and they're looking to further solidify their partnership with Oculus and VR. And so I can I have heard all of those things independently of where these sources are, I believe. They might be the same source, but uh you know, Polygon and Kotaku having these reports coming up. I've heard all of those things adding to that, and I think they might have hinted at this. Um, I had heard that when Xbox or Microsoft started getting word about this Sony stuff being real and very soon, which was still unconfirmed, um, there was a lot of crunch going on at, at Microsoft to see if Scorpio could be this year. And it looks like the answer to that is no, which is why I was saying E3 will either be amazing for Microsoft. They come out with this Scorpio with like a some form of bundle with Oculus, like they're all in. It's amazing. They're so prepared or not exciting. If Sony's able to pull off what people think they're going to pull off and Xbox is like, and we have a slimmer Xbox one, <laughs> right? Which looks like that's kind of the route. But I think, I think they're maybe going to say, but don't worry. This other thing is coming, which is a weird marketing thing. But I just wanted to say that as of right now, as of today, this is what's happening. It might change before E3, but as of today, this is what's happening. Yeah, it certainly looks like this is going to happen. Uh, There has been a bunch of independent little data points that all all indicate that this is definitely happening. We've got um, people finding out that there's a new category on the E3 website called Xbox One VR. And there's at least four companies that have signed up to be showing things for Xbox One VR. Uh, We have, uh, you know, these companies saying we have a a game coming in 2017 that is VR for Xbox. Uh, We have uh, independent sources. All of these things indicate that there's just going to be this massively powerful new Xbox One that's going to be double the power of the current Xbox One. It's going to be more powerful than what we expect the PS4 Neo to be. And uh, the partnership that Xbox has already established with Oculus, because Oculus, every Oculus right now ships with an Xbox One controller, will be even more solidified and you'll theoretically be able to play Oculus games on your Xbox One uh, I'm assuming there will be some sort of Xbox One Oculus you know, bundle that you'll be able to buy. Tasha, do you think this is a cool idea? Are you excited for – I mean I think it indicates that all of these companies recognize that VR is the next big thing and need to be part of that conversation. Are you excited for new consoles at E3? Well, I don't have an Xbox One, so I guess I'm not – I'm not super excited about it. I have a PS4, but um, I do like that they are partnering. It sounds like 
that they would be partnering with Oculus instead of trying to start their own other thing because I feel like there's already too many. <laughs> there's already too many different um, totally VR stuff totally to choose from. Um, so that actually makes me a little bit more intrigued um, that you could get maybe an Oculus and an Xbox One in one bundle. Um, yeah, yeah, and I'm hoping that that what that means is any of these Xbox One you know, Oculus or VR games will also be playable on PCs that have Oculus. I'm hoping that it's not going to be, what I'm worried about is that there's going to be a bunch of these, you know, PS VR games that, that are only going to be exclusive to PS VR. I, I really hope that. Wait, PS VR or Xbox one VR? I'm, I'm, what I'm afraid of is the PS VR because it's its own hardware is going to be exclusive to that platform. Uh, and I, and I'm more, I'm more encouraged that Xbox one, because it's an Oculus partnership will be cl- cross platform with other Oculus, you know, on PC, mm. um, uh, you know, that, that whole shop will be cross platform. So but do you think they announced this thing at E3 and then also say, but in the meantime, buy this slimmer Xbox one, that's the weird part of the messaging that doesn't seem to make any sense, right? Is, Hey, all the people that are waiting on an Xbox one, here's a slim version that you can buy for X number of dollars. But the real thing to get excited about is coming next year. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. That is weird. And I'm curious if they announce it, then it'll be a step further than what I know as of today. Cause I, and again, not this fine, whatever, here we go. Um, like, this is this is uh, there's a clerk's animated series episode where it's like carnies they just put everything together with duct tape and bubble gum like for what i know this relationship oculus microsoft is is duct tape and bubble gum like there are awesome plans happening but i think like all big businesses coming together trying to do something awesome i think there's always like a 99 percent chance <laughs> that something gets in the way of the awesome so i mean Oh, it, it, how do you announce something a year out when it's not internal, but at the same time, you're all trying to do your own thing? It's E3 could be crazy. Well, it makes it makes sense for both companies, right? It's a win-win. Oculus certainly benefits from having an established uh, a user base that doesn't need to have such a high-end PC. Uh, and, and X, a new Xbox console, you think, is an easier sell than, hey, make a PC that has these specs to it. You know, I think I think that's a win for Oculus and it's certainly a win for Xbox to have something in the marketplace that competes against PlayStation VR as soon as they possibly can. And if, you know, if they feel like PlayStation is going to have all of the thunder at E3 talking about their new upgraded console, I think it makes sense for them to be like, "Hey, we got we got a console too, guys." So do you think they even make a hubbaloo about the Xbox One Slim or it's just like and, – and coming in October, Xbox Slim for 199 or, you know, whatever, 250 Yeah, it's like the uh, iPhone color. It's like this, the thing that if you don't – if you just kind of want this but you don't really want the best one, <laughs> you can have that. The one you can buy for your kid, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Oh, it's, yeah, dude, that's I'm, crazy. I am so excited for this E3. I think it's going to be so – interesting and uh unlike any other e3 before it i will say that i think it's it's such a strange the way that the market has has shifted and become this and really it's i know people aren't going to like hearing this but it's the apple influence it's the smart it's samsung and apple and these and these smartphone companies that are influencing the console market at this point um 
and really we're seeing that we're seeing this much quicker iteration uh and and uh i don't know if it's going to end up being a good thing or a bad thing but it's certainly going to be an interesting thing yeah um i think that i would have to say my story of the week is uh not so much the no man's sky delay but the response to the no man's sky delay so we got confirmation everyone understanding yeah it was so it was super chill and everybody was cool about it and we all went about our way because waiting a few extra weeks is no big deal not um <laughs> so we got we we heard some rumors early in the week and then we got confirmation on the PlayStation blog and from uh tweets from Hello Games uh specifically saying that No Man's Sky which was going to come out June 21st now is coming out August 9th. So not too much longer, what, five five more weeks, six more weeks? Um, and um, spoiled brats around the world uh, exploded and evidently sent death threats to uh, Sean Murray and uh, Hello Games and even some of the people that reported on the story got death threats because if you report on the story, you meant, made it true somehow. Um the reason I want to bring this up is because it really, really got to me as, as periodically we get these stories of the community that I want to belong to the community that I feel most kinship to my, my, you know, peers, the, the, the people that love the hobby that I love and are passionate about it. And I make content for these people. I am ashamed of them sometimes. And it really sucks because we, you know, there are those of us who are old enough to remember when being a nerd was a, was a terrible thing. And I was so embarrassed. And every time that I heard that word when I was a kid, I was so embarrassed because I knew I was one and it just, it hurt to think, Oh my God, I'm this horrible social outcast, this nerd. And then somewhere along the line in, in the early two thousands, nerd, became the new cool. And I was on a show where we sold shirts that said nerd is the new cool. And I felt so um, amazed that we were really doing it. We were really turning that massive battleship around and people were proud of the geeky things they were into and wearing glasses was cool. And being, being able to program was cool and knowing math was cool and reading books was cool. And Oh my gosh, we did it. Loving comic books was cool. We took over the world. And now that battleship has continued turning and we've become the thing that we hate. We've become these awful, horrible uh, bullies that, that I used to, you know, I used to be afraid of when I was a kid. And now we are them. And I don't understand how this entitlement culture has, has, has latched onto the hobby I love and the feeling that if you delay a game – you promised me I could have it in June. No, I can't. So I guess I need to threaten you with death on the internet. What is going on? Yeah, I I was telling my husband earlier that I felt like, uh, unfortunately, that uh, death threats, it feels like it's become like the new middle finger. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. giving the middle finger to someone is so easy. But now just, you know, threatening someone with death is like, you know, just the easy kind of, I don't know, yeah. insult or yeah. something. It's gross. It's gross. It's gross how it's easy. Gross how casual. 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 So casual. Yeah, casual. casual. Yeah. 
I, yeah, I'm, and I would say that. Go ahead. Even if done in jest, like as a joke, like of course I'm not serious. It's just I wanted to let him know how angry I was. Like, no, no, and I don't want to defend the people that are doing this. Certainly, I fear though the problem isn't just nerds have become the thing that we hated. I I mean it's larger in our culture where this sure. stuff happens with sports too. LeBron's going to Miami, kill him and his family, and it's just this. Um, in the chat, Pastor um, M. Titus is saying, you know, it's the perceived anonymity makes people do crazy, crazy stuff. And it, it is this, you're not held accountable for your actions. And even in places where your real name is used, people just don't understand. There's been this disconnect between, well, it's just on the internet, dude. Like, it's not. You're, you're being hurtful to someone. Like, why... Why do that ever? Well, why, and I don't even it, understand. it's broader than just geekdom, though. You're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's in it's in politics and sports and anything that people care about. They seem to be unable to express disagreement without going to such ridiculous extremes. And it, it, it's a lack of civility, and it's it's truly worrisome to me as a person who's about to have his first child. I, I it really scares me, but. I will also say that uh, in the context of this particular story, in this particular case, I don't even understand where the anger comes from. Like, you have to wait six more weeks for a thing, and it's going to make that thing better? Everyone involved is going to make that thing better? I mean, you should pray for situations like this, where video game publishers allow video game developers to get more time if they need them. Like most of the time you would be so pissed if this game came out and it wasn't great. You would be so upset when, when a company launches something and it's broken or it doesn't work well. And most of the time, the reason that happens is because the developers begged for more time and the publisher said, no, the bottom line is more important. I need those dollars in my coffers. So we're putting the game out, come hell or high water, no matter what it is. So this is the best possible scenario for you that a, that a company is going, you know what? We believe in this product. We believe in this small independent team and we want to give them more time and more resources to perfect a thing that you seem to care about. Like even the anger to me is – comes from a place of ignorance. Well, I think it's I, I, um, the same people who are complaining about it being delayed are the same people who would – who would complain about if they didn't hit every, um, you know, everything that they promised. <laughs> right. Yeah. Every right. bullet point that they had mentioned casually about, man, we hope that we, you can, you're able to use your laser pistol to do this. Well, they were, they didn't do it. Yeah, I know. It's, it's such an entitlement. It's, it's, uh, it's so, so depressing to me. So depressing. I understand disappointment. I don't understand anger. Yeah. Like, Oh, it's coming out of my birthday, or I, I was playing out, you know, I had vacation that I was going to book. Or I understand disappointment. I understand, just totally understand disappointment, but like this hate and anger and, like you said, entitlement. It's, 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 it's a me culture that, um, has penetrated everything, unfortunately. And it's, uh, it stinks. And if you're listening to this and you are one of those people, think about what you did. And try to not do it anymore. We all let our emotions get the best of us sometimes, and we've all done things. Well, I certainly have done things that I'm not proud of, but let's learn for, from them and move forward and just stop the cycle. Like, you are in charge of you. Let's let's fix this. It's fixable. Let's fix it. I'm scared that, uh, of it not being fixable. I, you know, I try so hard. Anyway, 
I'll get down off a of soapbox because I know that this has just turned into a preachy kind of soapboxy thing, but I, I do think it's important and it really makes me embarrassed um, and sad and it feels hopeless sometimes to be in the face of, of that kind of, and I, you know, to Sean's credit, uh, he handled it really, really well. I thought his, his tweet about the death threats was as lighthearted as it could possibly be. And, and it kind of felt like they were handling it in a really positive way, uh, despite, you know, <laughs> a real legitimate reasons not to, but, um, anyway, um, speaking of games that have been delayed, uh, a lot and, uh, fueled internet rage <laughs> a lot, uh, we got confirmation this week that The Last Guardian is actually coming out in 2016. Um, I mean, I'll file this under I believe it when I see it, but uh, there was a new uh, front page cover article on uh, in uh, Edge magazine uh, about uh, The Last Guardian, the fact that it is coming in 2016. There's a interview with uh, Fumito Ueda, the designer, uh, talking about the game, and uh, he says it's coming out this year. He says, I do have some worries but I'm also very excited. I don't, I don't like it when you hear him say, I do have some worries, but it does sound like the game is very ambitious. I mean, I think a lot of us that saw it last year at E3 were worried that maybe uh, it wasn't as ambitious as it originally described because of the long hiatus in, in hearing about it. And then what we saw really was very similar to what we had seen, you know, 10 years ago. Um, but he says uh, that the, the crazy creature named Trico, he says this creature isn't like, the cute pets that exist in other games or an ally that's really useful. The role of this creature is ambiguous. That's something we wanted to express in the game and it doesn't always do what you ask it to do. That's one of the themes of the last guardian. It's something that's difficult and completely different. I want to create the next thing an experience that people have never had before. Wow. Tasha, are you uh, somebody that's been excited to, to play the last guardian over the last few years? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I really loved Ico or Ico. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I really loved that game. And so when I first heard about The Last Guardian, I was really excited. But I mean, to be honest, it's been so long since we've been hearing about this game and it not coming out that I mean, I'm just not as excited now because it's just been, it's just been so long. I don't even know how many years ago, but um, but yeah, I mean, when it comes out, if it if it comes out, right, right, I'll i definitely play it. Christian, how about you? Christian, yeah. how about you? you I do uh, like you. Uh, I do like that idea where it sounds like the creature might be almost like a wild animal or something that you aren't really sure what it'll do, and that does sound interesting. Yeah, I know. This is what you want from a, a visionary director like this. I mean, you talk about Shadow of the Colossus and and Eco being these games that really blazed completely new trails and were so innovative. At, at their time, and, and still are to this day. That makes them classics. Uh, that's what you want from a, a, a director like this, what you want from a, a designer who is really trying to create something fresh and new and different. And that makes me extremely excited that he's still talking in those terms about this game. Um, what do you think, Christian? Yeah, I think if done correctly, it's going to be amazing, right? Where you're scaling this cliff or trying to navigate this thing and you try to direct them to help and then instead it breaks into Jeff's house and kills Jeff. Wait, I don't – that's like, all – every time? Every time it's got to do that? There's no – Well, I mean just from a gameplay – um, this has the, the possibility of being incredible or infuriating, right? Like I think we all have memories of playing – 
maybe not all of us, I do. I need to quit projecting <laughs> my memories onto other people. Remember in fourth grade when we had Miss Wilson and we were all there together, um, you have these... I have these memories of, you know, playing Madden or sports games and it's a nail biter and I'm coming back. And then all of a sudden, like my free safety drops a surefire interception and you're just like, come on. Like when it's the thing that you're not controlling, flubbing it or like your shortstop in a baseball game, it like goes right through his legs and you're just like, yeah, like I get it. It's simulating a real game, but come on. So I'm curious how this game walks that line where, I don't want fail states because my cat bird dragon is doing something wrong. And I'm, I'm like stuck on a checkpoint trying to get the AI to do, to do the thing I want it to do. Isn't that, um, isn't that exactly what Un, uh, Uncharted 4 did so perfectly? It, it really, I think it had the most helpful NPCs in the history of video games. Like, let me pull the car around for you. I got it. No worries. I, I'm, I'm here for you. Let me do half of the work that in a normal game I would just sit here and wait for you to do. Um, I love that about that game. Yeah, and they actually killed guys too, which was good. Like they would take out guys reasonably quickly. Yeah. Well, I'm hopeful Asgardian is uh is as great as we all hope it is. I think we'll probably be seeing more of it at E3 this year, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> uh we'll probably as of right now, I really appreciate all the people that give us feedback. I on Twitter I asked about what you guys were hoping for for E3 coverage. I'm hoping we're going to be able to do uh multiple episodes during the week. Uh, looks like maybe we'll do um, one for the first grouping of of um, of uh, press conferences, and then the second grouping of press conferences, and then we'll do like a week wrap up. So maybe three episodes that week. We'll we'll see. But um, I appreciate everybody's feedback. We're we're excited about E3 as we always are. It's going to be a very very fun week, and uh, hopefully we'll have lots to talk about. I have no doubt. Uh, but I do need to talk about. Uh, our sponsor, which is Mac Weldon, and I'm always happy to talk about Mac Weldon because uh, Mac Weldon is something that you're likely to use every single day. <laughs> this is not this is not a once in a while type of a situation. These are basics. This is a company that makes basic, really high quality clothes that you're going to wear all the time. I was just on a plane uh, from Nashville. I went to Nashville for a wedding this weekend, and uh, one of the things I notice most when I'm on a plane for five hours is your underpants. Because uh, if you don't have comfortable underpants and you're sitting on a plane for five hours, boy, do you notice it. And thank goodness I was wearing my Mack Weldon underpants because they were comfortable. They didn't start to irritate me after sitting on the plane for that long. They didn't bunch up. They didn't start stinking. They're antimicrobial, so they're not going to stink or have any problems. And uh, they're, they feel good. That's the most important part. They feel good. They feel good. They look good. And they're easy to buy. Uh, they have a really cool online web portal that you can uh, select really cool stuff. They show up at your house in, in neat little packages. It's all very, very high-quality stuff, but at a lower price than you're going to find for these super high-quality type of situations. Uh, I really recommend it. I know, Christian, you and I both uh, wear Mack Weldon Basics T-shirts, sweatshirts, socks, uh, underpants, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, excellent. Well done, Christian. Um, also, what was that? You asked me. You asked me a yes/no question, Jeff. I can't. You can't hold me accountable that you're bad at asking questions during a, a sponsor read. Sometimes, point. let me try That's this. Let me try. Let me try pitching this yeah. to you, Jeff. Uh-huh. Mac Weldon, you really like it. Say yes. Yes, I like it. In fact, I, let me tell you a personal story about how much I like it, Christian. <laughs> uh, I was just on an airplane wearing 
<laughs> anyway, we're going to we're going to get you tw- This is for real. Hold on. Hold right. on. This is for real. I will say it. I have mentioned my some of my workout regimen before and I got free underwear from Mac Weldon when we started this sponsorship deal and they are my go-to workout underwear, which is not a diss. I think like you said about airplanes, workout underwear is some of the most important underwear because bad workout underwear is a bad workout. That is always my test for underwear and my Mac Weldons have become my workout underwear. So I, I will say this. I mean, let's be honest. At the end of a workout, they still probably stink, but, but they're my workout underwear. Uh, that, you can put that on the box. How's that sound? They are my workout underwear. Yeah. Guess what? <laughs> We're going to get you 20% off Christian's workout underwear. If you want to wear Christian's workout underwear, we'll get you 20% off. Wait, wait. What? Hold on, hold on. We got we to gotta get rid of that box quote off. That sounds way – that doesn't quite work. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all you got to do is use our promo code DLC. You go to MacWeldon.com and use our promo code DLC when you check out. That gets you 20% off. It lets them know that you listen to our show, which is actually very, very helpful to us. Keeps us going. Uh, and also, you'll get really cool basics that will actually help you out, make you feel comfortable. It's really high-quality stuff. Get 20% off. Use that promo code DLC and go to MacWeldon.com, M-A-C-K, W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code D-L-C. Uh, all right, guys, let's, uh, let's talk about some of the games we've, play- we've been playing by uh, going to the playlist. Ooh, what you playing this week, tell us. Ooh, what you playing this week, tell us on the playlist. All right, Tasha, what has been on your playlist this week? Um... Well, I have you know, I have a ton of games that I start and then I barely ever finish them because <laughs> other games come out. Um, and I have a two-year-old son, so... Uh-oh. My, it's my future. <laughs> yes. I, I don't have as much time to play games as I used to, but um, I've been traveling a lot um, lately, so I've been playing a lot of Bravely Second on my... On my 3DS. Yes, Bravely Second, the sequel to uh, uh, Bravely Default, right? Yes, um, and I, I didn't even know if I was going to get this game um, at all, but someone at my work was selling a copy, um, and I was like, yeah, I guess I should try it. <laughs> now you're hooked? Now you're hooked? Um, yeah, I really like it, actually. Um I I liked the first one. I put in about 40 hours on the first one, um, but I just kind of got burnt out on it. Um, I felt like it was – it got pretty grindy. Mm. Um, like for every boss battle, I felt like I was having to run around and level up my characters a lot to, mm. to do the boss battles. Um, but there was a lot of things I liked about it too, which this game basically gives me more – of what I liked about the first one, and then I feel like they've made the the it made it less grindy. Well, that's good. So they've well, done good. a few things to. Um, I haven't felt like so far that I've had to um, grind or anything. So um, yeah, they've just done a few smart things to kind of make it feel a little bit less grindy, and plus they've got. Just beautiful artwork. I love seeing all the different areas that you visit. Um, just the backgrounds are really pretty, and I like the character designs. I like all the different jobs that you can do. 
Um, the different character classes are really fun to mix and match the, the abilities. It gives like a good um, strategy to try to figure out all the different abilities to put in your party. Um, plus, one of the jobs is I think it's called a catmancer. Catmancer. <laughs> it's like a <laughs> yeah, it's like sort of like a, a wizard or a a, a um a uh, like a beast master class, but with cats. Mm-hmm. Love it. <laughs> Love it. So, um, so that appealed to me. Um, That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm really enjoying it. I'd say, as far as the negative things, just um, I don't know. The storyline is pretty, whatever. <laughs> but you know, I'm not really playing it for the story. I guess so. How do you feel about hmm, that kind of story in general? And interpret that however you will. Like, are you big on the JRPG or? non-western rpg do those story hooks get to you usually or do you play it kind of for the grind like why did you come well, to it, this seems, it seems like your game costume quest is what if there was a jrpg but it had a like a cool story <laughs> <laughs> well thanks <laughs> um yeah i mean i yeah i love jrpgs but i think what i like about them is usually more um the strategy and the stats and the battle systems, um, things like that. Um, the stories, I definitely feel like the Western RPGs lately have been doing a better job of um, doing more interesting stories. Um, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of JRPGs kind of use a lot of the same, like you see a lot of the same tropes and sort of stereotyped characters. Um, and I don't know if it's like a, uh, a cultural thing or I don't know. I just don't, uh, I feel like it gets a little tired. Like it gets a little tired. Yeah. 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 Well, so I think they don't, they don't grab me as much. It's interesting. It's like, what's a trope or what's painted into a corner and what is the obligation to think that that's what makes the game, you know, what it is. And there were certainly interviews, I think it was like the Xbox 360 era of some of these companies that were making JRPGs for the Xbox 360. And it was like, we, we looked at what we did and what is, people like about it. And we want to keep it Japanese, but also make it appealable to the Western audience. And some of those high profile games were misses. I feel like because it's such a, like JRPG is a thing, right? Like I can say, oh, what, it's a JRPG. And we know what that is. I wonder if they feel pressure to not make that or you know to what extent is it does it need to require some of these story tropes of this type of character and you know okay we're in act three here comes a death <laughs> or whatever right. it is. or like okay you're a young boy with amnesia right. and right. You know, the world is ending <laughs> you know <laughs> like always the same kind of <laughs> but I, that's why I think games games like costume quest and games like uh, South Park stick of truth and you know there are games that I think feel special because they take that those those mechanics and really layer on uh, a fun take on the the storytelling, and I think those are really exciting and interesting. So I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of my favorite games is Earthbound, um, and and I also really like um, the Persona series. There's something really interesting to me about having a JRPG that's in more of a modern setting, and that's one of the reasons I chose that for costume quest. Um, I don't know. It's just a different, you see a lot in fantasy and sci-fi yeah. kind of settings, yeah. not that many in, in modern 
setting. So that's sort of interesting to me. Um, what was and that also, game? what was that game? Sorry to interrupt you. What was that game that was on the uh, the DS that was set in the modern era? It was so awesome. I played a bunch of it. It had like a m- bunch of words in its title, and it was all like. Uh, it was set in um, the fashion district of Japan, and you like got fashionable clothes, and they gave you stats. Oh, is it? Is that the world ends with yes? You, or? Yes. yes. Such a good game. So it, I'm just saying it could come. It can come from the east as well. It doesn't have to be a Western take on Japanese style. That came from the east, but it it actually had a kind of a fresh view on it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I'm sorry, I was totally interrupting you, though. Uh, you, were, you were saying something. You were, oh, you were saying something. well, I just wanted to talk about a little bit about my one of my theories about JRPGs, which I think one reason why I still feel like they work a little bit better on handhelds now than on uh, consoles. Except, you know, I did like um, Nino Kuni. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I feel like overall their their voice acting has been really terrible (laughs) you know and 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 the voice acting in the western games is so good um it just you know even if the writing isn't so good then the voice acting can kind of carry it but i feel like in some of the japanese games even if the writing is good if the voice acting is bad it's just yeah you don't want to listen to it it just drags it down You know, and and some of the stories, even from like the old Final Fantasies and stuff, maybe the stories haven't really changed that much. But because they've added voice acting now, um, and I don't know, they're trying to get into more sophisticated animation um, with the acting. It just it's gotten so awkward. Mm. And when you see the same thing with just little sprites and text, it's not as I don't know. You buy it more, I guess. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, that's bravely second, which I think uh, uh, Tondagosa in the in the chat really sums up well. He said, "Catmancer, I need this game." So uh, I think really that's that's the takeaway from what Tajir was saying. Uh, Tajir, you've also been playing uh, Ratchet and Clank, right? Which I feel like, with your you know Pixar and animation background, probably is is a ray of sunshine in your life. Oh, yes. Yes. I've really been enjoying Ratchet and Clank. Um, And I, yeah, I just love like the pretty graphics and colorful, the colors. And I just feel like so many games are just trying to do this um, very realistic style. And that's usually really boring to me. Um, (laughs) I kind of feel like, why don't we just watch something live action if we want to see you know, the real world. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really love games that have, um, I mean, I know it, I feel like it's a little, maybe a little bit more effort art direction wise, but create their own art style and their own world. And the world of Ratchet and Clank is really fun. Um, And also just really fun weapons and really fun areas to explore and um, just gathering all the different things. (laughs) I like collecting things in games. So. Oh, God. The collection in Ratchet & Clank, I know I've said this a number of times on the show, but the collection is just because there's so many little bits, I don't know why I get <laughs> such joy from the number of – the massive number of bits that come streaming to my character in that game. Oh, I love it. 
I, so it, I'm delighted with how well Ratchet and Clank sold because uh, it, it gives me faith in in you know great games that don't necessarily have to fit into a certain box in order to sell well because uh, it, you know that game has done really really well and I think got deservedly so I think it got a lot of great acclaim and it, it is a breath of fresh air it feels like this throwback but also very modern and very very uh, technologically proficient it's it it looks. Gorgeous. It looks like a Pixar movie. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm going to need to, I personally, myself, need to keep it in mind for my top five favorite of the year at the end of the yeah. year. I think it'll be easy, unfortunately, for me to forget it, but just because it's not a new franchise or, you know, killing dudes or whatever games can do, but I, I constantly remind myself that it is such a good game because it is such it a really good is. game. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of, uh, of of good games, we we gotta we gotta talk about Overwatch. Is it was Overwatch Week? I know we've talked about it a lot on the show because of the the beta, both closed and open. Um, but Christian and I have both been playing a ton of Overwatch this week. Uh, Christian, you want to kick things off? Uh, any observations of the actual retail release? Um, so I I streamed it at launch, like right when it came up on my Twitch, which is just twitch.tv slash Christian Spicer. You jumped into a game, I think, what the next day. And when it launched, uh-oh, I was like, uh-oh, uh-oh, they didn't they did so many betas. What it's not uh-oh, uh but then after like 20 minutes, I have had since then very, very smooth experiences with it for a game that seems like so many millions of people are playing and getting in. Yes, there are still some problems and still some disconnects. Um, I've heard anecdotally and I've had a, a, a few things where I was in a game and I was like, Hey, what happened? But I'm playing on PC as, as you are. Um, but retail release, I think it's a strong game. It, it is what they promised. It's, it's co- we've you know, come a long way no- from Diablo three when, uh, and, and yeah. every world of Warcraft <laughs> patch, which hopefully this next world of Warcraft patch won't be like, but, uh, you know, we've come a long way of those days where basically, you know, 48 hours of unplayable. Uh, when a game hits yeah like taking it down like uh uh-oh um which i think was diablo and i i think it maybe gives hope that these betas were real betas like they were stress tested testing and they had limited bigger limited bigger limited and then they opened the floodgates and and figured it all out because it's been silky smooth for me what about you yeah yeah i have had no issues i get into games quickly um yeah it's been i think they have really done a great job with all the systems in the game getting into a game is easy getting out of a game is easy it's really clear everything is communicated really really well it it makes you know it makes that kind of game which can be very frustrating to newbies i think a very frictionless experience because you you understand what kinds of characters you need to play the game is constantly giving you feedback on what your team needs and how to do things better there's always tool tips coming up uh, unless you disable them, about things you could have done better if you die. Uh, it, it's vibrant and colorful and fast, and uh, games are quick. And uh, the way that they, you know, we've talked about this before, but the way that they don't focus on who's better than who or uh, how many deaths you had or how crappily you played, but it focuses on, you know, hey, this person did great stuff, and here's some other great stuff that other people did, and here's the play of the game. And it, it's all so smartly put together to create a very positive gaming experience throughout. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love Overwatch. I know maybe it hasn't hooked you quite the same way Heroes has, but I, you know, we talked about, well, Blizzard has still won, right? They, yeah. <laughs> they're reeling us both in just with a different line and lure. Um, this game is, I think, 
smartfully so, the next step of when Mo- I talked about this, I think on one of the the streams um, where Modern Warfare came out, and they had that carrot and stick and progression system, and it was revolutionary at the time when when Call of Duty Four did that, and everyone was hooked, and you wanted a prestige, and it kept you back. And I think it was the right time for you wanted to be good, you know, it was like get good, look at my kill death ratio, like stat tracking. I mean, Call of Duty then later came out with whatever their elite program was, where you could get even more in depth stats and like. This is it. This is the thing. This is this is how esports are going to be dictated. Is like be the best killer, and and that's cool. There's still space for that, but I think what Blizzard has done, and I think the time is right for it now, is that you are still there's still a rank. You're still there's still a carrot and a stick. You're still progressing. You're still unlocking things, but you're also getting a participation award <laughs> every every match. And I don't mean that with with snark or contempt. Like you feel good at the end of every match like you still know you lost if you lost and that maybe you could have done a better job healing and you maybe missed a you know a group resurrect that could have taken the checkpoint and you guys could have won you still know those things it's not as if you end the game and the game's like hey i know we said jeff had to play the game but christian it was really like it's not lying to you but there's such wonderful positive reinforcement and little like you said about ratchet and clank you know like bits more or less flying at you like rewarding you for this rewarding you for that and then the next game starts and you're like yeah i'm doing it and it totally fits with that the cartoony bright vibrant art style they have i don't think it would work if it was you know battlefield one and you're in the trenches and like blood and mud and everything at the end of the game it was like hey good job here's a ribbon (laughs) like it kind of wouldn't jive but this whole package I think is so smartly put together and just, you know, I sit down to say I'm going to play for 20 minutes and it's an hour 20 later. And I got my first play of the game recently. Nice, so, dude. you know, I'm hooked. I'm hooked. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that the variety of characters really helps a lot too, because there's so many different roles you can play and ways to contribute to your team, you know, and, and, and ways to mitigate some of the frustration points. Like, you know, I've been playing a lot of D.Va because I enjoy the fact that I can go in there and tank and be effective and get some kills and do some cool stuff. Uh, but then when someone gets me, it just pops me out of my mech and then I can run away hopefully. And and I'm still being active in the game and, and I'm not just waiting there to respawn. I'm waiting for my mech to respawn, but it's a completely different feeling. It's not like I just died and I failed. Uh, or, you know um, – May, uh, what's her name? Uh, the ice girl, May. Um, she, yeah. she, you know, she affects the battlefield in a way that characters in first-person shooters don't really do. It's much more of a MOBA-type character that's, you know, creating walls and blocking things, or moving people to different places, or freezing. You know, it's it's crowd control. It's CC. Uh, or these healing, you know, types. I know there's been healers in first-person shooters a long time, but these different kinds of healing types that you can affect the game in different ways. I think it goes a long way into really blasting open the accessibility of a game like this. Um, it, well, I think the way you can not even respect, but you know, you choose, you can change a character. You can change your character at any time in the match. And I think you're starting to see that in elite level yeah. play. And I think you'll see more and more of it trickle down to regular folk like, like me, where that can totally change the battlefield where if you have someone that is icing up everything and, creating these choke points while all of a sudden then you switch over to Farah and now you're above the play field and you can 
fly over the choke point and come in and drop rockets as your tank is now able to get in. But then once you do that, you want to respec and roll your own crowd control character because now you've got the point. And it's re- oh, although didn't I, I just know. see it's, this? And, but it's all did I just see this fluid. weekend that somebody like the one of the teams won. Uh, a big esports event with with four Soldier seventy sixes and a Farah or something like that. It was some something ridiculous. <laughs> you- oh yeah, well that that was what I was going to ask. Is do you guys find yourself um, playing the same characters for most of the match, or do you switch a lot? Christian, Christian, column A, column B. I'm still learning my quote unquote mains. Like I want to. My prejudice with this game is that I'm drawn to the character design that I like the best first. So I was like, Reaper, Reaper's going to be my main. And Reaper is a badass. You know, two shotguns, gets in there and deals death, but he's kind of slow and not the best to my play style. So I had to unlearn him. <laughs> I was like, I'd be like, okay, you can't, you're not, you're not Reaper. You can't be Reaper. Um, at least not yet. So I'm, I'm learning my people, but I did when I think Jeff, when you and I were playing, I think I respect partway through cause our match, we we're just getting decimated. So I switched over to mercy and started healing and we were able to get in. And even though we did lose one, I think we had the control point 99% to 30 and we ended up yeah. <laughs> losing it, uh, <laughs> um, which was By the, the way, wrong the, side of the epic. next day. But, I did the opposite of that. Alex Albrecht and I were playing and we, we were down zero to 99% and we came back and won. And I was like, I did the opposite thing. Oh, Where's Christian? So yeah, it's so good. So I'm, I'm learning that Tasha. I'm not, I'm not there yet, but I have seen people on my team, recognize it and it's really cool you'll see the the you know the tide change in an instant so i think that's where the gameplay will go i'm just not i haven't gotten good i've learned to that do it. the key to my enjoying these kinds of games is to have sustain is is to play characters with sustain i mean even when i was learning heroes of the storm and it really was my first moba it really was i you know i i dabbled with dota and league slightly but and and i had actually played a bunch of the um Lord of the Rings one MOBA and Smite a little bit. But really the first MOBA that I, I got into was was Heroes because I found a character – I played a lot of Muradin right to start. And he's a, he's a tank character. He has a lot of sustain. He can survive. He has a – his trait is that he regens his health. And I realized that if I don't die a whole bunch, I'm in the game more. I learn the game more and I'm having more fun. And then as I learn the game – I can expand my repertoire into other characters that are a little squishier. But now that I've got more experience and I understand how matches flow and what I'm, what's expected of me, I will enjoy those characters more. So I'm in that, like Christian, I'm in that learning phase with uh, Overwatch because I'm, I'm pretty terrible at first-person shooter multiplayer games. So I'm finding these characters with sustain that like Diva and Roadhog and maybe some of the healers that can, I can stay in the back and kind of just do my role and stay out of the firefight and not die a bunch. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of sticking with just a few characters right now and trying to learn and trying to expand my, my, my vocabulary of the game so that I can, you know, play some of the cooler characters. Um, but I have a, I have a question for you guys. And I know this is going to probably sound like heresy to a lot of listeners but I genuinely have this question, especially after playing a lot of Overwatch. And granted, this is coming from somebody that doesn't enjoy first-person shooter multiplayer games as much as other types of games. But is the sniper class fun? I understand it's fun for the people who play the sniper class. But I'm saying for the health of a game, for a game, is having snipers in a game fun for the game? I understand it's fun when you feel super powerful and you're hiding in your little 
perch point and you're camping out and you're just picking people off. I know that feels awesome. But for every single other person on in the game, is it fun? Tasha? Um, well, I actually am not good at first-person shooters either. <laughs> Um, and so that's one of the reasons I have not tried Overwatch yet, but it does sound like there's some character classes in the game, in this game that, um, you don't have to be good at first person shooters. And since it's Blizzard, I probably will try it at some point. I think you'll like it. Um, I think you'll like it. I think you'll like it. Yeah, I probably will. Um, I've heard nothing but good things about this game. So, um, I guess my experience would be from Heroes of the Storm also, um, where in that game, at least, it seems like the snipers are basically like a mage, almost like a mage, where they stand back and they, um, you know, shoot from a distance, but they're very squishy. Right. So right. they do have weaknesses. Um, so I guess I never felt like in that game that it was unbalanced, but it definitely, um, you bring up a good point that, you know, they do have to kind of figure out some way to balance it, like give them some weaknesses. Yeah, and, you, and you're and you right. Generally, the case is a sniper is very, very flimsy. It's a glass cannon. You know, it, it's very powerful from a distance, but uh, if you, you know, if you can find it, you can kill it quickly. And I understand the, I understand that balancing act that they're doing. Uh, and I, and I totally agree that in a game like Heroes of the Storm, the snipers, you know, snipers like Nova or even any of the mages that are very powerful, but flimsy, it's mitigated because of that type of game. You're in this top-down perspective. You see him coming. Uh, in here's in here's the storm. You almost never have a situation where one, you know, one. You're never in a one v one situation where one player can just wipe out another one. It's very very rare. But in first person shooter games, I'm just wa- waltzing along and then I'm dead. And I don't know why. I don't know where it came from. Uh, and then I get to see on my kill cam, oh, this dude was perched in this thing over there. So in that kind of game, I'm expected to use the information I got from dying to now try to you know, flush that person out of their perch point or whatever. In order to tell your teammate. Yeah, I guess. To t- so Tung Degosa in the chat is saying, and I, it's all about having a counter and I think the game being properly balanced. And I think – people that swear by call of duty will say that it has it because you watch competitive call of duty and not everyone is a sniper. Right. You know, there are people to just go in there and tank up the place and do very well. Um, I'm understanding the roles and this might change as overwatch is out even longer. and People get even better at it, but I'm understanding the roles in that game. And I think it, I think in that game and in other games too, that have clicked with me, I think the sniper does serve a, a, a role. And so you get taken out by the sniper. You see it. The sniper probably moves, but then you jump on the chat and you're like, hey, South Bell Tower, um, there's a sniper perched up there. And then Tone Degosa, who's playing Reaper, teleports, 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 jumps up right in their face and has double shotguns right in the sniper's face. And but is that fun? Sniper is that fun loses. to use the information I gained from dying to then? Yes, because the game isn't about kill right. deaths. I, I understand. I, mean, I the think idea. it's fun. I think it's fun as Farah to fly like I'm flying up over people, just like launching across the map, and then I see a sniper in a bell tower, and then because I have my fuel and I can hover, I'm just like, oh, well, you have no clue. I'm about to be here, and then you kind of hover behind them, fire off three rockets, and that person's done. Yeah, I, I like the I like the chicken or not the chicken and the egg, whatever Most it is. I, I, I like the chase. Yeah, I like the hunt. Yeah, I, I, I'm just I, – I kind of understand. I kind of can answer my own question in the sense that I understand you want to have 
you want to have choke points and you want to have flush people out and you want to have even the strong characters not be able to stand in, in one spot because there might be a sniper that's you know forcing movement on the map. And I understand those things conceptually and I understand that a sniper is a real thing. And so to kind of deny it in a, in a shooter game as a type seems odd. The baby in the sniper movie is not a real thing though. <laughs> I just kind of feel like we all just agreed that this should be a thing and maybe none of us has stepped back and gone, is it fun? Because I think – I kind of think it isn't fun. I think what I you're think saying fun. is that when you are when you die in a game, you want to feel like there's something that you did that caused the death. Yes. Like something yes. that you didn't do correctly or – you know. Right. But right. in the case of the sniper, you're just like walking along doing all the right things. And then instantly you're dead. Yeah, the thing I did was walk right doing, there. You're not doing the right thing. You shouldn't have walked right there. You're not, yeah. Well, and right, depending on the play, type of play, character you are, you know, if you're McCree and you get into an open space and you're not in the middle of conflict, you roll through to kind of burst through something. Or if you're Farrah and you see that you're going into something that's open and exposed, jet over that because you can get higher than any of the snipers can in the game. Or you're Reaper, you can teleport through. Or Roadhog, go ahead and just beast on through because you're gonna get through but come with another tank that's gonna you know add a little i think dying and not knowing where you die from is frustrating but in, in games that get you back into the action quick enough i think it's less frustrating and i think when the objective isn't kill death i think you do you you use that knowledge and relay it and especially if you're playing like let's say it's you know us three and we're a crew and we're going to wreck shop like i should get just as much joy as me dying and going tasha southwest bell tower and she's like oh yeah and then takes them out like that's that's a win yeah Yeah. you know okay i mean i get it i understand your gripe i do not have the same problem with it fair enough i'd love to hear what other people think you can always send us feedback dlcfeedback at gmail.com or talk about it on our subreddit uh, 5x5dlc.reddit.com we got lots of awesome feedback this week about our vr discussion with andrea um I'm not sure we're going to have time to go into all of it, but uh, really, really cool emails from a lot of people, and I appreciate the discussion. Uh, so, so fun. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about my hands-on time with Civilization VI that I had a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't able to talk about it last week because of the uh, embargo, but the embargo is up now. Uh, in fact, we're going to have bonus content at the end of this episode with my interview with Ed Beach, who is the uh, lead designer on Civilization VI. Really cool, interesting discussion. Uh, that I had with him at the event. So uh, stick around at the end of the episode for that. But I want to talk a little bit about my hands-on time. Uh, I'm a fan of Civilization. I love it. Um, I'm actually super excited about Six to come out in October because I'll have a newborn at that point. And I think it's going to be the perfect game. (laughs) A turn-based game that will wait for me to make my next move. Uh, It's going to be the perfect game to play with a newborn. I'm going to be so excited. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It'll wait for me. It'll make, I'll, you know, I want to have one more move and I'll be able to play up all, you know, I, you stay up all night playing Civilization anyway, right? So it's it's perfect. And newborns are the same way. They just yeah, wait for yeah, you. Exactly. Um, anyway, uh, I was very, very impressed with Civ 6. Um, they have a completely new graphic style that if you haven't seen it yet, you should really check it out. I mean, some people are complaining that it looks a little cartoony. I, I think it looks painterly and... Um, vibrant and it looks it looks artistic and illustrated you know it looks like it, it they did this amazing thing with the fog of war where if you if you exa- um, explore parts of the map and then leave it 
it'll show you what you saw there, but it'll kind of fade it out into like an old timey map. Uh, kind of like, you know, in the Indiana Jones movies when his plane is going from place to place and it's got that like, that like, you know, cayenne colored uh, map um, or cyan. Is it pronounced cyan? Cayenne? Anyway, it's that, you know, it's that weathered map look. Um, very, very cool. Uh, I think it looks beautiful. It's very detailed and very interesting looking. And they've done a lot of really cool gameplay changes. We talk about them in my interview, so I won't go into a, a ton of them. But um, just the idea of spreading out your cities over multiple tiles and having tile bonuses affect the buildings you build on those tiles is fascinating. And it's going to be a really interesting mechanic to explore more. Um and uh, how they've changed a lot of the ways culture works and the bonuses that culture gets. You now get these like these culture cards that you can assign and get certain bonuses over time. Um, all kinds of really, really interesting innovations. And I am so, so excited for this game. I think one of the biggest challenges they have with Civilization, any new version of Civilization, which is a series that's been going on for 25 years now, is that it, it probably feels really intimidating to new gamers. I would say, I, you know, I'm not a new gamer, a new Civ player, but I really felt like it, this is a game that's going to be very welcoming to new players and not overwhelming. And within three moves, I was like hooked. I was having a great time already. And I think people underestimate how fun Civ is because it kind of feels, it feels like it might be educational. Oh, gross. And it feels, you know, it feels <laughs> like it, it might you know be like playing a, a stats page or something like playing a spreadsheet. And it's not at all. It really is. No, that's Eve. What's that? That's Eve. Yeah, that's Eve online. That's um, anyway, I, I, you know, I can't really go uh, a whole episode without talking about VR also. So give, uh, indulge me a second. Uh, I've been playing a bunch of new other VR games this week as well, including final approach, which is a game. A lot of people told me to try, but I, I hadn't really, uh, given it a shot because it didn't really seem like the kind of game I would love. Oh man, it's so cool. So this is a Vive game where basically though I can't remember the name of the iOS game that happened many years ago now, like one of the very first huge, big iOS hits, but there was like this game where you, you are controlling, you're like an air traffic controller and you're giving flight paths to planes and you have to land planes and make planes take off. Do you guys remember that iOS game? I can't remember what it was called. Yes, I will find it. Oh man. Oh, yeah. Well, this works kind of similarly second. in the sense that you have to, you know, guide these planes to land, but it's in VR, so you're staring down at this like tiny little world, this tiny uh, diorama world of a um of an airport hangar and uh, you know, and, and air runways and you know, towers and stuff. And it's all there's no kind of flight control. Flight, flight control. control. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so in Final Approach, you are this, like, god being staring down at this little world of, of planes. And in the air around you, our planes are flying, and they need to land, and other planes need to take off. And you literally physically reach out and touch them with your Vive controller and guide them down and draw little pathways in 3D space to make them fly and land on the runway uh, in time. So it kind of feels like you're playing with little Hot Wheels or, you know, or uh, tiny um, model airplanes uh, because they look in, they look like physical things that are flying in 3D space around your head and then you grab them and take control of them and guide them down to land, it, which is really a really fun experience and very unique. Uh, but 
they add another layer to it because sometimes things will happen on the tarmac, uh, like maybe one of the planes that you landed had a problem in the air and burst into flames, and you need to make it land, and now you need to put the flames out. So what you do is you tap onto the the tarmac itself as you're this giant god being looking down on it, and you teleport down into real human size on the tarmac, and you've got a water hose in your hand, and you shoot the flames out with your water hose in a, like, real first-person shooter kind of view of the tarmac at the same place. Like, you just shrunk yourself down to human size, and you did that, and then when you're done, you go giant again so you can be a god and control the planes. So there's lots of little stuff like that where you're going down and doing manipulating things and coming back up and, and doing little mini games. And yeah, it, it feels a little bit like a iOS game that could go on infinitely and there's different levels and stories and stuff, but it doesn't feel like an, an incredibly complex game, but it is super addictive and fun. And the act of doing that stuff in the virtual reality environment is wildly entertaining. What was the name Final of the game? Final Approach. It's on the. It's for Vive. Uh, I also played um, an Oculus game called Chronos, which uh, from Gunfire Games, which is um, my goodness, it, it's a it's a system seller. It's a must play. It's a triple A like uh, amazing role playing game. It's the kinds of games that I would play not in VR. It's 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 exactly what you want. It's a third person action adventure where you're kind of going through time, you you have, it's a role-playing game, it's got these really cool elements about um, when you, anytime you die, your character is reborn but is aged another year. So you get older and older, and certain attributes that you've been putting points in when you level up, like strength and endurance, have less meaning when you get older, but other attributes like intelligence and arcane ability have more power when you get older. So when you're young, you can be this cool, like sword and board strong guy. And when you're old, you can be this more of a wizard intelligence guy. Really kind of clever, I think. Uh, And and so you're going through the different time periods, you know, you start, but you're always this kind of role-playing, you know, Tolkien-esque character. But sometimes you're in the modern world. Sometimes you're in a fantasy world. You're going through time and interacting with stuff. And the fact that it's in VR means that the whole world is around you. The game is gorgeous, really, really beautiful. One of the best graphics VR games that's available now. And I think I mentioned before, it's also, um, it uses that old Resident Evil style of camera. So as you walk into a a room, the camera is placed in, in a corner of that room. And the camera is your head. You're, you know, you're looking there and you can rotate your head all the way around but you never move that camera point until you move into another room. So then it like cuts to next part of the room, just like the old Resident Evil games did. And now your head is in a different place. So sometimes your head is like behind something or sitting on a shelf in the corner or high above or, or like levitating out over a cliff. So you can look down and there's nothing below you and your little character is far in the distance and you're controlling him. So it, it, it's amazing. And it's an extraordinary experience feeling present in that world that's so graphically rich and interesting. And then the game itself is really fun. It's got like these, you know, 
really great action adventure controls where you're blocking attacks and you know and parrying and rolling dive rolling and stuff that you would do in a normal action adventure third person game um so are you um, just using a controller to move your character? Yeah, around? this is this is for Oculus, so it doesn't have any of the touch controls. It's it's only played with a controller. So yeah, you're basically playing it like you would any other third person action adventure game. Yeah, because one of my things about VR is I just I'm not sure you know how sustainable it is to do um, kind of longer experiences if you know if it's like. Uh, if it requires a lot of physical movement and stuff, you know, is it better just for short, uh, short experiences? Yeah, well, I've definitely played for, you know, a couple of hours at a time, this game and other, you know, Lucky's Tale and some other games. Uh, and I, I don't tend to get that fatigue that people have talked about, but, uh, again, I, you know, I haven't played for 10 hours at a time. I, I tend to stop, you know. I tend to stop after a while. It does, you know, you, you do have something on your face and you do feel a little disconnected from the real world. So I think my play sessions are a little shorter than, say, you know, my play session with Uncharted 4 or something where I would, you know, play for four or five hours at a stretch. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because the trade-off is I feel like I'm in that world and I'm completely transported to that place. And it's remarkable and incredible. Yeah, it is. Can someone make a Jeff VR theme, please? Someone, any of our great artists that have already created themes or someone that wants to step up to the plate, because I would love to drop it to. in. Every, It's not going to go away. I like the discussion. I would like a little it, short, a short one, not nothing too long. Maybe it ends with like a THX sound or something like that to let us know we're in the world. <laughs> VR theme song. We need I to have need VR it. its own segment, you're saying? Is that what you're saying, Christian? No, 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 not at all. I mean, I'm dropping, I'll tell you right now, live listeners, uh, pick this up on RSS because I'm definitely dropping the hype train bumper into this show. You know what I mean? Like, I think we can just drop it in. We talk about it enough. I don't mind. It doesn't need to be its own segment, but wasn't it a nice little like strap in (laughs) and then you can talk about VR for a little bit. That'd be fun. Love it. Sounds like a job for Sean Madigan. Hello. Someone get out there. Do um, it. <laughs> all right. Uh, we've talked a lot about that. I, like I said, awesome feedback this week to dlcfeedback at gmail.com. Not necessarily going to have time to get to it, but uh, thank you guys all uh, for sending the cool VR discussion feedback we had with Andrea last week. Uh, really cool stuff. Um, let's take a second and thank our sponsor, Linode. Uh, Linode is a hosting company offering high-performance Linux servers for all your infrastructure needs. And Linode really has it all. Lightning Quick Service in the cloud, a super fast 40 GPS network, automated backups, node balancers, managed services, guides with step-by-step instructions, a simple but powerful control panel, 99.9% uptime, 24-7 support experts, and all the tools you need to get the job, job done right the first time. And it starts at only 10 bucks a month. Over 400,000 customers trust the, the Node platform and that includes 5x5. Five 5x5 by five. Five by five infrastructure is happily hosted on Linode. And starting is easy. Just pick a plan, choose your favorite Linux distro, and pick from one of eight data centers in America, Europe, and Asia. Just visit linode.com slash 5x5. Five five. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash 5x5. Five five. And use the promo code 5x5 five five for a $10 quit. Get $10 off at linode.com slash 5x5. Five five. Simple, powerful, reliable, Linode.com. 
All right, guys, uh, let's carve out a little bit of tabletop time. Tabletop time, tabletop time. Right now, right now. Tasha, you have been playing a game on the table. Is that correct? Yes. Um, actually, first I want to say that um, thank you for doing the tabletop segments because um, it basically encouraged me and my husband to start um, collecting tabletop Amazing. games. And Amazing. So we kind of we're we're new to it, but um, so when I when I knew that um, I was going to be on the show, we found our local game store and went down and bought Mysterium, which is a game I've been wanting to try playing awesome. for a while. Awesome. And so we played it a couple times, um, just two player, just us to kind of learn the rules mm-hmm. and stuff. And then we invited some people over and we played four player. Um, and, um, yeah, I really like it. I think it's just, it's, I think it's more fun for player, which, you know, most, most board games are are more fun with more people. But, um, you know, what I really like about it is, well, first of all, I really like cooperative games, (laughs) I guess. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, you know, I kind of am a competitive person, but I actually, the the competitive games that I've liked, like video game wise, um, are team team based competitive games. So like um, Heroes of the Storm, I got really into for a couple months. Um, I don't know why we didn't just talk about that for an hour and a half. <laughs> right. Um, um, which actually, you you kind of were the one who influenced me to try that. Awesome! Also. <laughs> awesome! I'm very proud today. Um, I'm very proud today. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just you get so you get so into things that it's it's kind of infectious. Oh, that's great! I appreciate <laughs> oh, that's great! I appreciate um, that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the fact that this game is cooperative, and even though you've always got one player who's playing the ghost, um, even the ghost has the same goal of solving the mystery. So everyone's kind of trying to work together to solve the mystery, which is sort of like Clue. Right. Um, right. But the other thing I really like about this game is um, it's like Clue where you're trying to solve the mystery, but it incorporates this element of creativity with these different cards with the kind of surreal paintings right. on them. Um, right. <laughs> and it feels like each different group of people that you play with, whoever's playing the ghost and whoever's trying to interpret these cards, you can interpret them in so many different ways that it just makes it each time you play is going to be different. Um, So I really like that aspect of it, how the different cards can be interpreted. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah, we really all enjoyed that game. I'm so pleased to hear that. That Yeah. Mysterium is a really, really cool. have, Have you ever played Dixit? No, I haven't. Is that kind of Yeah, you should I, I if you like Mysterium, Dixit is kind of like Mysterium with even less pressure. <laughs> um and a lot of people when Mysterium came out, it was like, "Oh, it's Clue meets Dixit." Basically the, the with Mysterium, as you said, you're trying to solve the mystery of of who done it and how done it and why done it. Uh but the the one player is playing as a ghost and the only way they can communicate is by using these very enigmatic images that are printed on these cards to try to influence and give clues as to as to what the truth is that happened. And in Dixit, you've got the same kind of thing where you have these cards. And the way you play Dixit is 
everybody has a deck of, of these very unique, beautiful cards, especially as an artist. I think you would, uh, you would really love the art style. They're very sort of dreamlike and, um, they've got all kinds of wild different imagery on them. And, um, everybody has a hand of those cards. And then one person has a, a card in their hand that they then describe in a sentence or a couple of words or however they want to, they have complete freedom about how they want to describe the card that's that they've chosen. And then they put that face down and everybody else picks the card in their hand that they think also fits that description. And then all those cards get shuffled together and everybody tries to pick out which is the actual card that the person described. The trick there is if everyone – if you're the person that said the few words or the sentence or whatever and everyone picks your card, then you get no points. So you can't just describe your card in detail, right? You have to have at least one person that didn't pick your card in order to get points. But you want to get as, mo- the, as as many people to pick your card as you can, but not everybody. And then everybody else gets points if people pick their card. So they're hoping to try to pick a card from their hand that fits that just as well. And it's this wonderful, in the same way that Mysterium is, it's this wonderful lateral thinking that makes you sort of start applying these beautiful enigmatic concepts to really kind of strange imagery and you find yourself having these very dreamlike discussions and it, it, it's super cool. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm, I have to check that one out. Yeah, but I, you know, I think that, uh, I think Mysterium kind of applies that same logic in the, in the application of attempting to solve that mystery, which is why I think it's so fun. Did you, did you have the experience that Christian and I had, which is, uh, going like, why don't you just, why can't you understand the thing that I'm obviously trying to tell you? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, yeah. <laughs> but then, yeah, also just not having any cards in my hand that make any sense and just having to pick yeah. something that's, yeah. okay, I guess I'll play this card because I don't have anything, right, right. <laughs> you know, right. being being the ghost myself, I mean. Awesome. Uh, I I do want to read a a quick email that we got for Tabletop Time. Uh, This comes from Chad Schonk. He writes, uh, hey, Jeff, Christian, love the show. Want to drop a question. I was wondering why you never mentioned Magic the Gathering on your show. You say you also talk about games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard, and Magic the Gathering has all of those things. In fact, the game's most common nickname is Cardboard Crack. I know you don't play it. uh, I know you don't play, so it never comes up, but... There has been several news stories over the last year that I think would have been interesting, including uh, Wizards of the Coast banning a number of their judges by for simply viewing leaked cards online, their attempt to reduce the prize pool at certain events only to change their mind because of community uproar, and the ever-controversial subject of the magic economy. Magic is more popular than it's ever been in its 20-plus year history, and while it doesn't rival MOBAs as far as esports, it does have a healthy and popular streaming community. Plus... You wouldn't have Hearthstone if it wasn't for Magic: The Gathering. Uh, thanks, guys. Keep putting it out in the uh, keep putting it out in the world, uh, Chad. Um, I think that's really interesting. I used to play a lot of Magic: The Gathering. Did you ever play that, Tasha? Tasha? No. Um, I think my husband used to play it, but um, like I said, I'm pretty new to board games, so yeah. I have massive one. amounts of Magic: The Gathering still in my closet that I should probably just get rid of, but it's hard to part with them. Um, 
Magic gathering yeah, exactly, the dust. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I've been out of that scene a while. And honestly, you know, Hearthstone, I think, in a lot of ways broke that spell, that magic spell, if I may. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing. It's still making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And, yeah, all these news stories are really fascinating. There's a really cool article recently about uh, that you know, that change in the economy and the way that that magic is really trying to figure out where it's going to go, even though it's making more money than it's ever made. They're really scared, I think, of the fact that it's not a very watchable sport because of some very strange rules. And Hearthstone really figured out a way to streamline those things and make make that basically the same type of game very watchable. Uh, I find that fascinating. But, you know, they've also got uh, a, a new expansion that just came out, the uh, uh, Shadows of over Innistrad, that sounds incredible. And, uh, you know, it's a very vibrant, cool game. And I'm always uh, excited when I hear about, like, my nephews getting into Magic because I feel like it's one of the stepping stones to, to you know, enjoying tabletop games. I feel like, especially as a as a you know, a 12 or 13 year old, like 10, between 10 and 13, if you can get introduced to magic as a kid, you're hooked. You're like, you get, you get what's so fun about tabletop games and really gaming in general. And I think it's a very educational game in a lot of ways. So it's certainly not something that I try to avoid on the show, but yeah, we don't really talk about it because it's its own world. Um, and, 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 you know, we're not really tapped into that world as much but i'm certainly open to more stories about it and i appreciate the feedback very much christian did you ever play magic the gathering i did not it was one of those it just never clicked for me i think i got interested by it a couple of friends were already pretty deep into it by the time like i got into that group of friends and they were all very welcoming, but I was just like, ah, oh, no, that ship sailed. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thanks a lot for the feedback. Again, dlcfeedback at gmail.com is where that goes. We're going to wrap the show up. Uh, we do have our parting gift coming up as well as bonus content uh, interview about Civilization VI that you're not going to want to miss. But um, I do want to thank Tasha Sonart so much for being here. This was really fun. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. It was really fun and um, looking forward to your E3 Yeah, podcast. we are too. It's going to be wild. It's going to be wild for sure. Um, but Tasha, tell people where they can uh, keep up with you if they're interested in following your exploits. Um, well, most of my stuff or, you know, most of my social media, I guess, is Twitter. Um, and you can follow me at, to- at Tasha Sonart which is spelled T-A-S-H-A-S-O-U-N-A-R-T on Twitter. Fantastic. Christian, how about you? You got something going on this week? Um, Tomorrow, Tuesday, if you're listening to this live or the day it comes out, I'll be at the Comedy Store for a really awesome show. I've done it once before. It's called Night Owl, and it's in the belly room. I'm excited to be part of that again. And then... um, Twitch. I've been streaming, getting my Overwatch, my watch over me Overwatch streams going. It is twitch.tv slash Christian Spicer. That stuff is also archived at my YouTube, which is youtube.com slash Christian Spicer 713. And you can find the Marriage Is shorts there as well. They are their own playlist for comedic shorts um, about marriage. <laughs> and then uh, a parenting podcast I do called Department of Parenting with Chris Quintos, who is the the wife in those marriages shorts and Tasha was a guest. That was an awesome episode. We had her on dropping tomorrow, the 31st. We, um, we chat with Rob Kreckle, who is the senior sound designer at naughty dog, who has been on this show. It's we, um, 
we talk a little bit about being a dad in crunch <laughs> and how you manage that. And it's really cool. It drops on the 31st. That is called Department of Parenting. And then Twitter is the easiest way to get in touch with me. It is at Spicer, S-P-I-C-E-R. Oh, and we were both on uh, uh, the last, the second episode of Anthony Carboni over at Comic-Con HD What's News. We had we, You and I both had little cameos. I think they dropped that one on YouTube, so you can find it. Not only do we both have too. cameos, we were both in ridiculous costumes. Uh, it's not Neither yes, of us are, have true. cameos as ourselves. We have cameos as... It's, it's as if Anthony's trying to punish us uh, with putting us into ridiculous costumes. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so definitely worth <laughs> seeing us be silly there. Uh, but do check out marriage is if you haven't already, uh, I'm so proud to be part of that. I think it's really funny. I've been getting such great, great feedback, um, from people saying how much they enjoyed it, how spot on your writing is Christian. So kudos. Well, yeah, you sent me a thing privately that made my, made my week. So thank you. Yeah. I like episode four. I like how short it is. (laughs) That's my favorite. It is. It is there. I think Chris and Jeff's reactions in listening is perfect. They are, Phenomenal performances. Well, that is my favorite. I'm married too, so I, you know, been there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you can always listen to me on uh, several other shows, including the Slash Filmcast at slashfilmcast.com. Uh, talking movies that we just did our X Men Apocalypse review, so check that out there. Uh, I also do a daily tech show on CNET called Tomorrow Daily. You can find that at tomorrowdaily.com. And uh, the aforementioned Anthony Carboni and I do a comedy show called We Have Concerns. You can find that at wehaveconcerns.com. All right, guys, let's wrap the show up. Let's give people something to get them through their week. Let's get to the parting gift. Hey, give us a suggestion of what to do this week. Give us a parting gift. This is your parting gift. Tasha, do you have a uh, parting gift to get people through their week? Yeah, so um, one of my other hobbies that I don't have enough time for these days since having a kid um, is cooking. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone recommend a cookbook on DLC. So I wanted to recommend um, one of my favorite cookbooks and it is called cooking my way back home. And the author is Mitchell Rosenthal, who's a chef in San Francisco. He owns a few different restaurants here. Um, And the reason I like this cookbook is because um, well, the stuff that I've made from it is really delicious, but it's also pretty approachable. Like he's modified um, the recipes to make them easier for home cooks. And um, his influences are kind of um, Southern mm. cooking and um, New Orleans style Ooh. stuff. So I really like some Those jambalaya flavors, and like stuff like that. Jambalaya and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And there's like a yeah. New Orleans barbecue shrimp recipe in there that's amazing. So, um, yeah, that's called Cooking My Way Back Home. So, yeah. Awesome. Cooking My Way Back Home by Mitchell Rosenthal. Uh, Christian, you got a you got a parting gift? Two on Netflix, one I have not watched, but I'm excited to watch. I really enjoyed season one of Bloodline oh, so and Bloodline season two is out and I've heard it's excellent, but I have not watched any of it. And then one I have watched and I know it's excellent is Maria Bamford's Lady Dynamite. Oh, it's so absurd and silly and does fresh and new things with the comedic sitcom um, standards that it's so worth watching. I think you'll love it. Maria is just a, a genius. She's so funny and the show captures 
her voice so well, some great cameos from Patton Oswalt, and it's just it seems it's, it's impossible. Perfection. Lady Dynamite it seems impossible is so good. to capture her particular voice on stage, and yet this show does it. Like it's amazing because it, her voice, her comedic persona, and her stand-up is so quirky and different and way outside the box. And yet they managed to figure out a way to make a TV show that's all that stuff too. And they didn't even need to put her on stage to do it, but yet she wanted yeah, to be on stage. <laughs> it's so good. Well, what about you? Uh, people that have been listening to me for a long time know that I did an audio book a couple of years ago uh, called Traveling in Space, and that was written by uh, Stephen Paul Leva. If you haven't listened to that, uh, boy, I really have gotten so many people that have dug it. Uh, I really recommend it. I think the book is really great. It's a science fiction book. Uh, but the author, Stephen Paul Leva, has uh, another book, a whole actually series uh, about the fixer, and these are books. Uh, this this book is called Blood and Blood is Pretty, and it is set in Hollywood. Uh, it's really funny. It's really kind of dark and and um, um, it has a lot of funny things to say about Hollywood. Is very biting about uh, about Hollywood. This is a guy, the writer who uh, worked in Hollywood. He actually produced the animation for Space Jam uh, and and a lot of other things. Um, so he has a lot of insight into, uh, the inner workings of Hollywood and he kind of uses this noir detective as a way to, uh, skewer Hollywood. It's called blood is pretty. And the, um, the ebook is on sale right now on Kindle for 99 cents. So it's like nothing costs you nothing. Uh, I think until June something it's, uh, it's on sale. So I, I urge people to check it out. I think he's a really fun writer and it's a really great book. Blood is pretty. Um, and now, for the very first time, I want to introduce something new. I know the show is getting longer and longer, but people seem to like it anyway. So I'm going to do something to make the show even longer. Uh, I want to keep – I think people dig the parting gift. And we got a, a listener who sent us his own parting gift. And I want to make that a regular thing. If you have a parting gift that you want to, to send to us, send it to dlcfeedback at gmail.com. And I want to have, in addition to all the hosts on the episode, I want to do a listener – parting gift every week so we'll start off there's a great thread on the on the subreddit too where people were chiming in yeah, with suggestions i think, uh, really I cool. think this is gonna be a fun thing so chris uh truxus sent in this he said uh he's a running d here he's a running dick uh which you know we we don't believe that right christian neither of us believe that but no it's a carboni mon- uh, monster carboni monster carboni this show with that somehow uh he said he wanted to make a suggestion for your parting gift uh make something for somebody Make something for somebody with your hands. I made a train table for my son for Christmas last year, and it might be one of the most rewarding and gratifying experiences I've ever had. I've run marathons. I've lost weight. I'm an Eagle Scout, but I don't think I've ever felt more accomplished than when I made something. Make something small. Make something big, but make something for somebody. You won't regret it. I thought that was a beautiful sentiment. He sent that in, and I wanted to read it. Um, so I think this would be fun. Have uh, you know, listener parting gifts. So uh, send those in. And feel free to make something for me. You can send it to. (laughs) All right, guys, stick around uh, for bonus content this week. My interview with Ed Beach from Firaxis Games, the lead designer on Civilization V. But thank you so much to Tasha Sonart, Christian Spicer. Uh, We got music 
by Patrick L., Sean Madigan, and Zero Star. Peppered throughout the show. Thank them for that as well. Uh, thanks to the folks that hung out with us in the chat room when we recorded this one a little little late on a Memorial Day, but we appreciate you guys hanging out. Thanks to all of you that downloaded the show and listened as well. We appreciate it. You are our life's blood. Please tell a friend or rate the show on your platform of choice. It really does help. Uh, we'll talk to you next week as we get ever closer to E3. Get excited. Until then, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place. All right, I am with Ed Beach, the lead designer on Civilization VI. I have had just a few scant minutes with it so far. I'm excited to get back up and play more, but my goodness, this the look and feel already is a, is a big jump forward. I, I'm so impressed by the graphic style, that painterly map feel. Tell me about coming to that. It was a challenge for our team because uh, not only did they want to you know, put their stake in the ground in terms of establishing a cool new look for the series. But from our uh, designer point of view, we had big, big challenges for them. So imagine a Civ Five world where what you see on the map is a city, and there are improvements around the city, but there are not that many different types of them. You see lots of mines, lots of trading posts, and lots of farms, and then assorted special ones like plantations and pastures. Mm-hmm. But that's probably most of what you see out on the map, you know. Less so than most of what you need, right? Most yeah. of you know, eight to ten different types of things, pretty right. much out on the map. Um, what we're going to do here in Civ Six, and I told them this right away. This was part of the design: is we're going to unstack the cities, and so all that content that was in the cities before, the wonders of the world, all the buildings you built, that just ended up stacking up into this huge list of items that were built in your city, they're going to all have to appear on the map. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to be able to visually identify all of them. You're going to have to be able to approach an enemy city with your army and say, oh, wait, look, he's got his research over here. He's got his industrial base over here. He's got another city over here where he's got a military encampment where he could, you know, all these things that you have to be able to recognize right off the bat. Um, and it's also very helpful to look at your own cities and be able to remember where you put everything. Yeah. Um, so now we have 12 different types of districts, and then you start adding improvements onto that. And those are all things that appear out on the map. And it's not only important to be able to visually identify them quickly, but we're going to put in rules so that where you put each of those items um, is either to your detriment or to your benefit by having bonuses for things being adjacent to terrain that they like or other districts that work well with them. Right. For example, the one that you showed was letting your scientists be on the top of a mountain so they have a better view of the stars helps with... Yeah. And pretty much all the districts have those. Like commercial district is um, if you can put it next to the river so that the trading vessels can come in and out of that district there's going to earn more gold for you. So there's a logic to everything that that plays into it. But also I feel like it it spreads out your city. How was that a challenge in just sort of logistically about how how big the game gets and all that yeah. stuff? So just to finish your first oh, question. Sorry. We threw that challenge in front of the artists and they had to decide how are we going to represent this in the game? And they knew they had to um, pull back a little bit. They're already Civ Five looked a little muddy towards the end of the game with just um, lots of textures and 
hard to pull out different types of units. And so they wanted to clean that up anyways. And with all these new requirements for what visually had to go into the world, um, they had to come up with a new style that worked like that. And I think they've done a great job of that. And you can actually look at individual tiles. Each of the districts has three upgrades, so three different levels of buildings. So like the campus has library, university, research lab. Mm -hmm. And you want to be able to see exactly how many of those are in place each time. You know, maybe you're attacking an enemy and he's got three campuses on the borders with you and you want to figure out which one's the juiciest target. So you yeah. want to be able to see that. So there's just so much information out on the map that we needed a new art style that supported that. It's really, really beautiful. And, and yes, the, the ability for them to actually come up with a new style that's very distinctive, but also is conveying all the right information. I'm just super happy about yeah. it. Um, so your next question... <laughs> I like to stack my questions. <laughs> ...was about... Um, help me out here. Uh, it was about uh, this, sort of the, the spreading out of uh, cities. And, and like what the... Yeah. We've had a lot of questions about, does the map need to be larger? Right. And um, you know, is the space between cities larger? And, and actually, those things have not changed significantly. Um, what I think about the Civ Five maps was there was just too much repetition in what was going on there. You could see lots of farms. And like uh, when the vanilla Civ Five came out, trading posts were everywhere. And it was actually a really good strategy to put trading posts everywhere. Right. Um, but visually, it started looking like a disaster because you get these repetitive trading post tiles all over the place. Um, so what we wanted to do is, is mix it up more. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about the footprint of a city, there are 36 tiles within three um, spaces of, a, of the city center. Um, a little bit less if you're on the coast, but in general, you, get, you have quite a few tiles to work with. So even if you're putting five to seven districts outside a city, you can't put all 12 around the same. I mean, you can if yeah. you get a huge population city, but that that's a challenge in itself to get all the districts around one city ever. Yeah. Um, so you, you probably have five, six districts around a city, and so that's five or six less farms and trading posts. But overall, it works within about the same footprint on the map. Interesting. Um, so we didn't have to change that. So what brought you to that? I mean, what, what's the process of sitting down and iterating on a franchise that's been around for 25 years like this one? What brings you to, to that decision of like, hey, I want to unstack cities? Um, it's been around, we, we considered it for Civ Five. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually made a case for it with John Schaefer for a while. And he made the right call. Because he's like, we're changing so much for Civ Five already, because <laughs> we're unstacking the military, right? And we're doing one unit per tile. He's like, you know, that's <laughs> enough. And, and he was absolutely yeah. right about that. So he made the right call. Um, but that the kernel of the idea was back there. Uh, initially, it came up with wonders would be great out on their own tile, because mm -hmm. then they're wondrous, and wonders are are such a signature element of a yeah. civilization game. Having them jammed in on the fringes of a city and barely be able to see them, that's just not the true representation of what they really should be. Right. Um, so they were the first thing we were sure we were going to move out. But there were other things that we did. Um, we were working on some of the expansions for Civ Five, but with an idea of these are really good places for us to test things out that we might want to do for Civ Six. So it's not sort of like Five ended and and we there was a total reboot. We had at the end of five, we did some things that got us ready for going into six. And so there were things like, um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with some of the particular civs in, we had in Civ 5, but we had the Inca. And the Inca had terrace farms. And you got bonuses by pushing them up against mountains. Right. And if you could find a nook of the mountains to nestle their terrace farm in, they was just 
massively productive. And that, that was the start of the adjacency bonus idea. It really, we, we prototyped it with the Inca as a proof of concept for it. It was fun. It was, right. you know, it, it's it, it, so those unique improvements um, sort of, uh, we, we could tell that they were working in Civ 5. We, we got to the point where people were like, I only want to play Civs with unique improvements. Mm. The ones that only have unique buildings or a second unique unit, they're just not that fun. Right. And I'm like, that's, that's an important data point because I can tell that that unique improvement game is so much fun for people that they're seeking it out, so let's make that kind of the core gameplay for Civ 6. Yeah, which is interesting because I think it, it really changes... Like, just the basic blueprint of your city is changed now, which makes the game feel really fresh right away. Because and now you're thinking differently, even just right at the beginning. Right. And it's not the same blueprint on every map. Yeah. It can't be, because those mountains aren't in the same place. Right. So the river runs down. Different, and, yeah. and so it, it builds on the strength of the Civ game, which is that you get a fresh map every time. Yeah. And I think uh, people that have played Civ a long time, sometimes the... Or even new gamers to it they'll see a new you know a big numbered edition and the the juicy new stuff is deep into it you know and here it, it's right away you're you're thinking differently than you've ever done which is pretty cool that's true it in terms of the um like first 10 turns it's it's maybe not hitting you over the head that you know it's still very um i'm still moving units i'm still exploring the map right so it, it it's probably right in that like twenty turn twenty five to turn fifty or sixty. Mm-hmm. That's when all of a sudden you're playing like a whoa, this is a totally different game. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, you're in the middle of you're probably right about to hit that transition point where all of a sudden your head's going to explode a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, it's it's very cool. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the other new things. Uh, the the civics uh, has got its own tech tree now. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it always was weird to me that chivalry was a technology. <laughs> right, right. And code of laws, even, that's not a technology either. Um, and the tech tree, we, we, when we get to Civ 6, you're looking for, like, where are grid opportunities for us to shake it up? And, and, and the tech tree was something that hadn't changed. From, from Civ 1 to Civ 5, it worked pretty much the same way and mm-hmm. did the same thing. Um, and there were already some moves we had made in Civ 5 to pull... Like, Civ 4 had religion starting out of the tech tree. Right. And that felt especially awkward. So we pulled that much out of the tech tree in, in Civ 5. Um, but when we were looking for new ground to go with Civ 6, um, it, it wasn't actually the first civic system we had. We iterated... We actually... I think it was probably about the fourth civic system we had where we put it on a, into a tech tree. So oh, there was wow. definitely, we had time to iterate and try out different things and throw out some bad ideas. <laughs> well, that's cool, though. I mean, that's yeah, how you, that's, that's what you want. Yeah. Um, but eventually we got to the idea of, w- one part of the reasons we went for a tech tree with, for civics was we were having so much fun with the tech boosts on the science side of it. Right. We're like, this is really fun. This is cool. And it, it's it just felt natural that what you're doing in the game world was opening up parts of the tech tree faster and faster for you and yeah. you know, re- rewarding that that um, play style that you were pushing. Yeah, let's say, let's explain that uh, just real quickly because there's these eureka moments now where the things you've done in the world, places you've gone, battles you've won, things you've discovered or, or uh, relationships you've started will trigger boosts to certain 
uh, discoveries. Right, and you explained it very well. <laughs> but what it what it does is it means that if you're not playing um, the type of game where you're industrial, say you're just not building mines, you're not building quarries, that part of the tech tree is going to be hard for you to get through. Yeah, and getting through bronze working and iron working is just going to be tough. Um, but if all those resources are right around your city and you've already sent builders out and established mines and you're just like this crazy little dwarven empire doing all that kind of stuff, boom, you're going to be flying through that part of the tree. And that just feels natural. It's, the tech tree's not off on its own, divorced from the rest of the game. It's yeah. just integrated in with what you're doing on the map. Um, and then taking all the civics and putting them in a parallel tree and having them have the same type of active research system but also being able to cross-pollinate back and forth between the two trees has just opened up all sorts of interesting possibilities. So now you research a technology, um, but that technology is something... Um, so, for instance, games and recreation is a civic. And to me, that represents Roman gladiators and coliseums and, and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But in order to be able to put on that kind of spectacle you need to be able to build a coliseum or something like that. Right. So the construction technology, when you get that, that's the boost for games and recreation. Oh, cool. So they cross well, It makes sense because, it. yeah. And in general, the tech tree is unlocking units and buildings, but not always. We have units and buildings that both unlock over on there. So like your museums and amphitheaters and the things on the cultural side of the game, those unlock in the civics tree. Hmm. Um, the great cool. library, which is like in, when you play Civ Five, if you really want to be the, the beast in the science game, you got to get to the great library. Right. Beat, beat everyone to that. So you're thinking, push science, push science, push science, beeline for that. Well, we shook that up a little bit because we moved the great library, which is all about, it's not about being more scientific. It's right. just being socially deciding you want to collect all the wisdom of the ancient world in one spot. Sure. So we said that's a civic activity. <laughs> and the great library is over in the civic tree. That's cool. So it w- from a design decision perspective, was that about trying to let the map and the circumstances influence you more than saying, I have a specific strategy and I'm trying to set out to do that from the start? Yeah, that's yeah. that's what we want. And in general, the active research system is great for that because there are some boosts that just may not be available on that map. Right. Um, they might have to do with, you know, like the religion game is opened up by finding a natural wonder. That gives you the boost to astrology, and that unlocks religion. Yeah. And it might just be you don't have a natural wonder nearby. Now, there are plenty of other ways you can get into religion. It's not like you're locked out of it. You, And anything, anytime you don't have that boost, you can hard research through it, and it just takes, you know, five or six extra turns. So it's not a disaster. Yeah. But what happens is you see the boosts that are available to you, and you're like, wow, this direction's like, wide open. It's Maybe cool. I'm going to go that way, even though I don't normally play that way, and it just breaks you out of your normal place. Yeah, I think that's absolutely awesome. And, yeah, it might, I kind of want to wrap this up by, by going taking a step back and going, what are the challenges? You know, I'm a big Civ fan and have been for a long time, and, and as we – mentioned at the top, 25-year anniversary of, of the Civ franchise. So there's a lot of people who are very invested. What is the balance between talking to those people who are already on board and excited versus bringing in new players? What's the challenge of bringing in new players to these kinds of games? Um, I think those, those are two pulls in opposite directions, as I think you're, you're hitting at here, yeah. because the established players want new 
and they want new depths and they want to um, have challenges they haven't faced before. But we don't want to lock out any new players at all. Um, So I think where I gave a huge challenge to our art team to try to represent everything out on the map, Mm -hmm. I also have presented huge challenges to our user interface team to try to keep everything clean and, and... um, so I don't know if you've gotten to putting your first district down. No. But when you do, and I think we did show this in the demo, there's a whole new interface that pops up. And we call this system the Lens System. And the Lens System is all about sort of user interface overlays that sort of contextually, for whatever operation you're doing, change the map out so you can see just the information you need to make that decision. Oh, cool. It's sort of like a decision support you know, system. Right. And so when you're trying to put down your campus, it's going to tell you every tile that can have a campus and what the science bonus is going to be for putting it down there. Um, and maybe some of those tiles are outside your culture borders, but it'll say, hey, you can spend 50 gold to buy this tile, and then you'll, you'll be getting a plus four bonus out of right. it. So you, might, you definitely want to consider doing that. So it so, focuses all the information on the task at hand right now. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's the kind of system that we need to make this still just as accessible to new players but then, you know, all the experienced players can see all this depth and then they'll just geek out over yeah. it and just be really happy. Awesome. Um, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time. I, I just want to end by asking, um, does every game end with Donald Trump being a great person that you discover <laughs> and then the, all civilization ends? I'm just, just curious. And you have to bigger, build a real big wall. <laughs> you have to build a real big wall. Uh, well, thank you so much. This has been awesome. I, I, I'm... Can't wait to go up and play more, and October can't come quick enough. All right, great. Thanks a lot.